Hey, Eric here. Before we start this episode, Laura and I wanted to mention that we've recently launched a newsletter. If you're looking for some career inspiration in your inbox, head over to howigotherepodcast.com. In the newsletter, we share behind-the-scenes thoughts about our episodes and feature written stories on how others have figured out their own career journeys and share their advice. If you've enjoyed the podcast and are craving for more honest and inspiring career content, you should definitely sign up at howigotherepodcast.com. We've got a bunch of subscribers so far, and you're not going to want to miss out. Without further ado, here's the show. Thanks for listening. This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we're speaking with, then we'll get into the interview, and lastly, we'll each share our biggest takeaways from the conversation. Today, we're talking to Austin Martin, Vice President of Strategy and Operations at Sneak. Our conversation with Austin was quite winding, so I wanted to give a quick overview of Austin's career ahead of time before we dive into the interview. Austin started his career in investment banking. Shortly after that, during the recession caused by the dot-com bubble, Austin went to go work for First Albany Capital. He then went to MIT Sloan, worked at Bain & Company, and has worked in a series of strategy and operation roles until he's finally landed his job at Sneak last year. I actually first met Austin by cold emailing him on LinkedIn. For a class assignment, we had to interview people that had careers that we would admire. And Austin's background of going to Sloan and then working at Bain was something that I'm looking to do. So I definitely wanted to talk to him. Beyond just sharing a similar path or background with me, I also came to find that Austin is extremely thoughtful about his career, and so I had a lot to learn from him. On this episode, you'll hear the story about how he takes his career into his own hands, and that includes talking to an admissions officer in a liquor store to get some advice on his application. We'll be back with that story and the rest of our conversation with Austin after the break. My name is Austin Martin. I'm the Vice President of Strategy and Operations at Sneak. So we know you studied government while at Georgetown. How did you end up getting into investment banking then? Probably there was some of the herd mentality of like, okay, this is what most of the class is applying for. I had, you know, not an, an, a, a mountain of debt, but I did have student loans and that did weigh on me. Like I, I, I felt some anxiety about it. You know, I want to pay them off as quick as I could. And so uh, I think with what my classmates and my friends were doing in conjunction with you know, having a realization of, I, I do have debt that has to be paid off. I was looking for more of a, a job that, that paid a little bit better. How did you find investment banking once you got there? What was it like? Did it live up to the expectations you had? Yeah, you know, I, I was looking for, for skills. I was looking to like, you know, really like hard level skills. Can I, can I build a model? Can I interact with senior level people? And yeah, I think I got that. I got great exposure at a very young age to CEOs, CFOs, understand how they think and how they act. And that I do think that exposure is really important. And I got hard modeling skills. I got PowerPoint skills, which I know sound very junior and basic, but if you don't have them, it's really hard to present your best work or make, you know, perform analysis that for the earlier part of your career is what people care about. And then your more senior career, you need to be able to to quickly inspect someone else's work to make sure it's zero defect and something that you can trust and rely on and then uh, know how to present it in a good way. So I, I think those are foundational skills that I picked up and I'm glad I have. Why did you end up leaving investment banking 
And what sort of made you realize it was the right time to leave? So that was when I, that was 2002 that my program was ending. That was the, we're still in a recession at that point. Certainly the technology space was pretty beat up. A lot of the the tech middle market focused banks like Alex Brown, Hamburg and Quist were all acquired by larger banks and they all tried to, to move them up market. And there was this group of technology companies, middle market technology companies who had got locked out of the capital markets as a result of the recession. And these guys from Robertson Stevens, you know, I think they considered maybe starting their own bank or utilizing uh, an existing bank to restart an effort focused in catering to these underserved populations. And like, I, I thought it was something I wanted to be a part of. We know that during a recession, it can be hard to find your next job, or if you do, it might take a little bit longer than usual, or you might have a bit of gap between jobs. Was that the case for you with First Albany? You know, my, my gig at First Albany, even though I started talking to the guys in September, didn't really materialize until June. In that interim, I was doing some things with a guy from Deutsche Bank was starting his own company, and I was doing something with the Georgetown grad who had his own investment bank. But it was it wasn't like secure work, and I was hopeful that the first Albany um, position would pan out. But it took a long time to pan out. At that point, I realized like you know this is this is me to figure out what I want to do and where I want to work. I can seek out people who can help me, but and they'll help me for that period of time, right? The allocation. Hey, could, do you have an hour to give me advice? Sure. I've, you have one hour of my time. Probably They're probably not thinking about me after that one hour. I think that's a really important thing to realize early on in your career because it pays dividends going forward. So I guess to go back to First Albany, how did you end up liking your time there? I like working there so much. I signed up for a second year and with those guys and deferred. You know, I hadn't applied, but I, I deferred, deferred the decision to go to, to, to school for one year. Do you remember, just on that point, do you remember when you decided you were like, all right, actually, I want to, you know, stay another year here? Was there like a, a special day or? It was exciting. Like we were kind of building all the things that you need, building the models, building the pitch books. Every, everything was exciting, for at least for me. You know, I remember working like pretty late by myself, being thrilled about it. Like it, it was, in smaller places, you're asked to do more. People have to stretch to fill the gaps because you don't have robust, you don't, you don't have an analyst pool, you don't have a group of associates, you don't have vice president. Like, it's just everyone has to expand their role and it would force me to operate at the limits of my capabilities at the time. And I was pretty excited about that. Uh, and I thought I was getting a ton of learning by being asked to do more than I was capable of. It sounds like First Albany was a great job and you were learning a lot. So... Why did you then decide to leave and, and go to business school? Uh, so I, I really, I knew enough to know that I didn't, I didn't know enough. Maybe it was producing a little bit of anxiety in the back of my head, like other people are better trained than me and other people have MBAs. They must have more education. They must have a more well-rounded understanding of how things work than me. And I wanted to go, you know, I wanted to make sure that that, that, that anxiety, that, that uh, sense that I didn't know as much as other people uh, was, was not there anymore. So what was the process for applying to business school like for you? Do you remember anyone in particular that helped you through it? I remember I was in a liquor store and, um, and I can't remember the guy's name. His first name was John. 
and he was an assistant admissions director at Sloan. And, and I remember being at the Sloan presentation and he was there, he was distinguishable because he had, had long hair and he had a deep voice. And so I, I knew it was him. And uh, he was kind of following us around the liquor store because we were like, the guy was helping us, we were having a party. And uh, I, I was like, hey, I saw your presentation. Uh, it was great. Uh, I'm, you know, Sloan's my first choice. I'd love to go. And he's like, well, why don't we meet for a drink? And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear about your application. So I, I was like, who, why wouldn't I take this chance? I went with that with him, had a drink and he's giving me tips. And I was telling him what I was going to write in my essays and why I'm applying. And, you know, he, he was giving me great tips. And not only was he giving me tips, he was like, they were like hard hitting, like that answer is not strong enough. He's like, you got to think harder about that. That, you know, I was like, oh, this is not a friendly drink anymore. This is like, <laughs> but I, 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 I took, like, I, I wasn't taking notes, but I was taking mental notes. And I remember going home and I was like, all right, I got to sharpen that essay. It's not strong enough. This, this is weak. I got to, I got to really make my case compelling. That's really funny that I think if I had seen that person in a liquor store, I would have turned around and, and run. Um, but, but it's really <laughs> good that you went up to him and approached him. Have you, and, and clearly you reap the benefits of that in the advice and counsel he gave you. Have you taken that in other parts of your career as sort of motivation or encouragement to be brave and, and reach out and, and make the asks of other people? Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I mean, I can give I guess one other example. I think when I decided to, uh, to stay at, at first Albany, I, I remember going in to, to John and say, I, I really like working with you. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, that I want to go back to business school, but you know, if you can make this, professionally and financially rewarding or, you know, make sure that I'm advancing financially and professionally, I'd love to stay a second year. And I remember within 24 hours, he came back and said, we can do that for you and we can advance you financially and professionally. And, you know, it became worthwhile to stay. So you went to John and he was your boss at the time at First Albany? Uh, Is that who he was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. John Buck. Yeah. Were you, were you nervous about that conversation or were you just more hopeful? No, uh, yeah, of course you're nervous. Like that's a strange ask. I've never done something like that before. Um, uh, I got a a, a cousin um, who's ten years older than me, who has given me like mountains of coaching and advice. You know, he's uh, yeah. I prep for that that meeting a fair bit with with my cousin just to say like, what what do you want me to say? How do I say it? Like, and he was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? He's going to say no. You know, I think you should go back to school. Um, but he's like, if, if if you're valuable to him, then why wouldn't he try to, you know, make you stay? If you're making his life better, better, why why wouldn't he want to try and help you? He's like, try try and make him feel like he's helping you. People, you know, I, I don't know whether this, where where I heard this from. Who who feels more indebted, the person who is helped or the person who provides assistance? And typically, it's the person who provides assistance that feels more of a connection to to, to the relationship than the person who gets it. So it's like if you can establish those kind of relationships where people feel like they're helping you, they're going to they're gonna feel committed to making it work. This story also reminds me that um, of on your LinkedIn, you have five principles that you follow when it comes to your career. And the fifth one is, I take sole responsibility for my career. And this is an example of where you, you did that in a sense. I think I, I personally have trouble doing that. And I put a lot of emphasis on how others are or not helping me or advocating for me in the career decisions that I make. And that really guides the paths I choose. So for you, what does it really mean in practice for you to be taking responsibility for your career? I think too often people think a company or their manager is responsible for 
giving them training or, you know, I want to do better. So there's a desire, but there's not a sense of ownership. They're like, I want to learn more. I want to allocate the time. I just don't know how to do it or I don't think it's my responsibility. And I think the faster people can recognize that the only person that really cares about their career is themselves. Like other people want to help you. They're like, when I say that, I don't mean like, I don't want to help my team or I don't think that the people I work for don't want to help me. But like, they can't be thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about like my own development. So I think once you say like, okay, it's my responsibility to uh, carve out time. It's my responsibility to identify my weaknesses and the strengths I want to develop. It's my responsibility to figure out who can help me to do what I want to do. To do all this, you sort of have to carve out time to think about these things and to ask yourself these questions and figure out what you want to do. Is that, how, how do you do that? Is it as formal as putting a block on your calendar every month or every few months? Or I think you should do some sort of personal development for like two hours a week. Wow, that's a lot of time. Two hours a week? It, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and that, I, I do think that's probably the appropriate amount of time. When, when you think of like, if you work 40 hours, 50 hours a week, it's, it's not that much percentage of your time. And to think about like, professional athletes, how much time they spend in training versus performing. I think allocating at least two hours isn't that much to, to sharpen your skills or think about how you can advance uh, your skills. How would you fill up that time? It could be as simple as just like reading, picking up an HBR article or reading about your industry. If you're, if you're still early in your career, maybe it's like just working on a hard skill, like just what are the command codes for Excel or, you know, like so you can get more efficient at your work. And you get more seniors like, well, what do I need to know about leadership or managing others? As you get more seniors like, well, what do I need to know about what's going on in the world? And you got to find ways to constantly be advancing yourself. Then you're going to feel a lot more empowered. And the more you can, that's true about anything in life. The more you can feel like I'm actually the one dictating things and directing things, things just become so much more enjoyable. When, when you think things happen to you, it's, life's more intimidating that way. But when you think like, uh, like I'm creating things, it's just more exciting. You're more energized. You're more willing to try things. Look, we all can't always operate in that mindset. Like, yeah, sometimes you, you're having a down day or a down week or down month where you're like, these things are happening to me. And I, I don't feel in control. You know, you just got to recognize like, okay, well, what can I do to about it to put me back, back into that other state of mind? So one way that you put yourself in control of your own career was going to business school. And we know that when you went there, you didn't want to do investment banking or finance afterwards. So how did you end up finding your way into consulting? Yeah, this one probably doesn't reflect so well on me as like, like taking command of the things. I think I was in part by, you know, just the the herd, like, okay, half the class is going to do this. I guess I should pay attention to what, uh, what most of the class is doing. And then consulting firms do a great job of selling selling what they have to offer. It was a great way to not make a decision and not close any doors, you know, continue to, to, to build up a, a body of work, a resume that, that people would find attractive. And we know that you graduated in 07 from Sloan, went into Bain, and then the Great Recession happened. Can you, and given the situation we're all dealing with now, you know, a lot of our peers are graduating into a recession. Can you tell us what that experience was like? Was it very different than, you know, when the economy was booming? It was anxiety producing. I remember I bought my house in 2008 
in December of 2008. I was right around when stuff started going seriously sideways. Bought a house, bought a car, and I had my first kid. Uh, my, my daughter was born in April. I was like, wow, this is so much change. And in, in an uncertain job environment, I, yeah, the anxiety is high. I, there's, I, I think anybody that tells you that is like either has got some backstop that uh, you might not know about or they've just got a great outlook on life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it, these are anxiety-producing times, and it was then. What you want to try and I think you want to try and do is limit the number of variables that can produce anxiety for you in 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 times like those. And that I'm not saying necessarily like go into down hunker down mode, don't take any risks. I'm not saying that. It's like just be more thoughtful about the things that might increase your anxiety. And if you want to take a risk, be committed to that one. Don't try to take risks in too many different places because you, you could just overwhelm yourself with anxiety. It seems like one way that potentially you've managed risk even in your career is by maintaining some sort of continuity in the people that you work for or work with. Like you mentioned at EMC, you ended up um, leaving Bain to work there with someone that you met at Bain or was a former Bainy. And then your next two career moves were also following someone who you'd worked with previously. Do you think that continuity has been important to your success in your career? Yeah. 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 Um, and I can explain that a little bit more too, because I don't think this is about like just going to, to safety or like what's comfortable. Um, the, re- the reason I say like try to minimize the number of variables for change, it's so that you can, I think, move even faster. If you, if, if you establish yourself with a, a couple of individuals that know your skill set, they're willing to take more chances on you because you, they know what you're capable of and where you'd like to go. And if you're good and they know you're good, they'll give you that freedom to try something that might be out of your your typical comfort zone. If you go work for someone who you don't know and they don't know you and they don't know what your skill set is, I mean it's just human nature. They're gonna have to be a little bit more, you know, why don't you do what you've done before? Or they're less willing to take a risk on you until they get comfortable that that risk is going to be fruitful for them as well. So that that's why I, I think it's important to find people that challenge you that have the values that 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 are important to you hardworking, super intelligent uh uh risk takers genuinely good people with with a set of values that align with your own that make good judgments based on those values and then like try to do the best you can to 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 elevate them and provide leverage to them and they in turn will do whatever they can to make sure that you're you're as good as you possibly can be so that they can go do the next thing um and so that's that's what i mean by like try to control a variable and if if you can stick with people who you've built a reputation with i think you'll advance even faster hey austin i'm reminded when we had talked you had a really interesting way of evaluating new career and job opportunities i'd love to hear how you use that or anyways how you thought about it when you moved from your previous job to come work at sneak I try to I try to get as descriptive as I can around what's important to me. Almost every other job that you apply to, you won't have a relative comparison. It's, you're going to have to have some absolute comparison by which you assess. So you need to know what's important to you. So when I left when I left Bain, and I, I I guess to some extent when I decided to come to Sneak, you know, I I tried to get very specific as to what I wanted. 
when I left Bain, at least, it was geography was an important category for me, the company culture, the role, the career path that would be afforded, the compensation, the lifestyle, and then the industry. And I got very specific as to what I wanted in those categories. And then with Sneak, it came down to, I mean, all these attributes, you know, remain the same, getting very clear on the role, the compensation, geography was important, company culture, really important, maybe less so in the lifestyle, but in the industry was already spoken for at that point in my career. So are there any of these things that you'd say you definitely prioritize at this point in your career? It comes down to things that, that make me excited to go to work and work very hard is working with people that I really like. And like, I, I think I've gotten to the point in my career where I don't just have to work for a brand name or I don't just have to work for compensation. I, I, I do have a little bit more freedom to choose who I get to work with and work with people who I really enjoy uh, working with as people. And when we're working, I really get a lot of value out of how hard they're pushing me to think. And so like, that's important to me. That's really important who I work with. And then the role, like constantly being asked to do something that might be a little bit beyond what I've done before. That's, that's also important to me. And then working for a company that has got a well-positioned product, that's got a good market fit, has a potential for explosive growth. Like that's kind of like the winning combo for me. And uh, I think Sneak, I found that great group of people pushing me hard in a good role that has opportunity for growth for me in a company that's extremely well positioned with a great product, good market fit, it checked all the boxes for me. This is somewhat related to what you're describing in evaluating an individual position or career move, but we wanted to ask how you define what a successful career is and do you think you've achieved it yet? For me, it would come to, I love what I do. I it, like, I'm excited to wake up and go to work. I have that that the the effort that I put forth allows for financial stability, and at the same time, I've got a growth trajectory. The other factor that probably is really important to me is I'm able to spend quality time with my family. So uh, it's taken me personally some time to be able to to disengage when I'm with in, in social situations and with my family, not to think about work. But like once you're able to do that, like it's just like a it's a complete sense of freedom when you're can be engaged in the moment with the people you care about. I was just going to ask how you learn to do that, how you learn to disconnect between work and personal. I think it's so easy to blur the two, to be checking work emails during meals, et cetera. So how did you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm really not, like, you asked me, you didn't ask me, I guess you did ask me whether I achieved it. I didn't answer your question whether I totally achieved it. Um, that one's really hard. It's still very hard for me. I think part of it comes when you get to some level of sense of security in your job. Like you don't have a constant sense of anxiety. Like, am I doing a good job? Am I working hard enough? It does require you to say, okay, I don't need to check that. I don't need to respond right away. Nothing really bad is going to happen if I let that go a little bit longer. I think you also got to, you got to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. So you got to have some physical component to your day. You got to burn off that nervous energy in some way. Um, and then I started doing a little bit of like um, this Headspace apps or uh, have you guys have done it? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Headspace. So I, uh, I had a career coach and she's like, well, what are you doing to, to work off? Like, you know, focus on you. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, I, I exercise a, not a ton, but a decent amount. And I bike, I run. And she's like, 
you know, you talk about biking and running. She's like, sounds like you're running away from things. Like, what are you doing just to like center yourself? I'm like, and th that's when I started doing this headspace stuff. But focusing on your breathing just will naturally settle your, your, your emotions. This is a development area for me. I'm not perfect. You were asked my wife and my kids, am I great at this? I'm, I'm not. But yeah, it's, it's really important to, 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 to try, to keep trying. So one thing that struck me about what Austin was saying around like the continuity idea in terms of the continuity and people that he had worked with over across companies even, um, because he talked about how he moved from one company to the next based on following someone. I thought back to my time when I was in consulting and I, I remember I spent those two years really trying to do that. And I followed the same partner, the same principal, and I think it really did pay off. But at the same time, I wonder, like, what are the trade-offs of doing that, right? Like, I didn't get yeah. to see a bunch of industries because I did that, you know? But of course, I did be, get to develop those more meaningful relationships with those couple people, and I learned a ton from them, and I wouldn't trade it in for the world. But one thing I wish I asked Austin more in retrospect is if he had thought about, like, what are the trade-offs of, of staying with those same people um, and, and having that, that continuity that he was describing? Yeah, I think I, I've done something similar when I was at Bain. And so it's hard to know the counterfactual is like, oh, I really liked working yeah. for those people. But could I have liked working with other people or in different industries better? Exactly. What stood out to you mostly from this interview? I think a couple of things. I think one of the things that he mentioned, which I think is really prudent for people that are thinking about business school is there's not a lot of time for self-exploration. Uh, you know, he mentioned it's like you get on campus and a month later, people are already recruiting. And so I think that and coupled with his advice to take, you know, two hours a week to spend some time on professional personal development, thinking about what you want to accomplish and reflecting on where you want to go and, and reading kind of other articles to to improve your skills and your your thinking. Yeah, that two hours, right? That really struck me as a long time, but I'm glad he included reading and things like that in that two hours. So it seems more doable than, you know, like a pure reflection with a blank sheet of paper or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was, it was interesting. It wasn't, you know, 30 minutes, you know, I think two hours it's like, yeah, it's substantive, but also in the grand scheme of things in a seven day week, like that's not that much time to ask for. Yeah. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was his experience with the people that helped him go to Sloan and, you know, have helped him throughout his career. And he had that great quote of, you know, who's more benefited, uh, mm -hmm. the helper or the helped. And I feel like, Lara, we know from our work here that we learn a lot from our conversations here and it's been really great. But then I'm also so happy to talk to friends or people that reached out to me on LinkedIn um, that want help with it, you know, working at Bain or coming to Sloan. And I, I get a lot of value out of that as well. So I think we're always, I'm, I used to always be afraid to ask for help of other people and this experience and, and Austin's experience has, has showed us that, Hey, people are, are actually, they like to help. So don't be afraid of reaching out. Yeah, exactly. Just in that liquor store story too, right? Just like reaching out and saying hello to someone. And he didn't even ask. He didn't even make an ask. He just was courageous enough to say hello to the person who then eventually gave him so much advice on his MIT Sloan application. So I think that is for me too. Another takeaway from this is just trying to be more brave about these things and, and less 
overthinking on um, on reaching out and, and making those asks of people. You can find more episodes of How I Got Here wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please consider sharing. It really helps. Do you know the perfect person for us to interview next? Or do you want to be on the podcast yourself? Check out our website at howigotherepodcast.com. We'll be back with more episodes soon.